Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Despite our name, we won't be playing any music during this podcast. We have instead chosen to talk to those people who are closest to our castaway, their friends and former colleagues. And this in itself creates a soundtrack to their career. Today we meet Roger Orff. Born and raised in Missouri to a farming family of German descent, Roger started out as a risk taker, as the first in his family to attend university. He earned a scholarship to Georgetown, where he was one of the very few people awarded the prestigious Phi Beta Kappa Award before reaching his final year. He went on to study his JD and MBA in law and business at the University of Chicago before starting his career as a tax associate at Kirkland & Ellis. Three years later, Roger joined Goldman Sachs as Hank Paulson's associate, kickstarting his astronomical rise in the real estate world. Having moved to the UK with Goldman as their first head of European real estate, Roger then set up his own company, Pelham Partners, building a $3.5 billion business from scratch in seven years. Roger moved back to corporate life in 2002, serving successful stints with Lone Star and City Property Investors before moving to Apollo Global Management 10 years ago. Now partner and vice chairman of Apollo's principal finance and real estate businesses, he has closed over 30 billion euro of real estate and NPL deals, investing over 10 billion euro of equity since 2010. Roger currently serves on the Board of Policy Exchange and has been a member of the Chicago Booth Council since 2015. Known for his philanthropic work, Roger focuses on primarily two causes, education and poverty. He and his wife, Lisa Heffernan, support their respective universities and also ALDA, a charity in Paraguay focused on feeding and educating impoverished children in the country. A lesser known fact, Roger used to be lead guitarist of the band Me and the Other Guys. So although we are not Desert Island Discs, this is one soundtrack we do recommend you look up. <laughs> Regularly referred to as the best dressed man in real estate, listeners will be amused to hear of the sartorial sacrifices this man has had to make in the name of sport. But more on that later. Roger Orff, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you, Emily. It's, I'm pleased to be here. Pleased and honoured to be here. Thank you. Good. Listen, let's, uh, let's kick things off by, by talking about risks and let's jump straight in to hear from Joe Azrak, former managing partner of Apollo's real estate business, who first met Roger over 40 years ago whilst he was still at Goldman Sachs. Here's Joe, who had something to say on your approach to risk in general. Sometimes you can see how someone will behave in their professional life by how they behave in their personal life. And when it comes to risk, the uh, thing that, that I remember most vividly is when Roger and I were in Samaritz one winter and he, uh, he said we should go up and do the Cresta run, the skeleton toboggan run, which is about three quarters of a mile straight down pretty much with a lot of turns on a, uh, a weighted sled. I think you make the whole trip in 20 seconds or something like that. And Roger does that every time he's there in the winter, as far as I can tell. You seem to be 
quite an adrenaline junkie. Do you take the same risk and approach with your investments? Fortunately not. Joe failed to mention that the first time I was on the Crest Run, I spilt out uh, onto my sled. And uh, that emboldened me to try, try, try again. And I find often in life, like the Crest Run, it takes a while before you get to the peak. And that's certainly something I learned in the Crest Run. You gotta, you gotta keep going. Keep, you gotta keep, keep going. Keep at it. And what would you say has been the greatest risk you've taken to date? Look, you know, I think in my personal career, it was leaving my law firm, Kirkland and Ellis, and going to Goldman Sachs. And as bizarre as that sounds, uh, forty years ago, Goldman Sachs was not a household name. In mm. fact, when I told my mom and dad I was going to Goldman Sachs, they thought I was going to work for a department store. I can. I, I, my mother said, "What do they do?" She says, "I think I've been shopping at this place." Will, will no. you be front of house, darling? <laughs> um, but once I straightened them out, uh, you know, it was a. At that time, it was a private company. There were two thousand employees. Now there's probably forty thousand employees. Uh, Sherlock, one of the best men in uh, in my wedding, in fact. Uh, uh, told me that this was a good place to go to, but believe me, I was uh, I was very naive. You know, I knew nothing about finance, but for what the MBA had taught me. My wife worked for a bank called the Harris Bank in Chicago. I remember uh, the guy who hired me, in fact, Hank Paulson, who you mentioned earlier uh, on the line. The first day on the jobs, we spent the night looking and analyzing a specific company. And he said, Roger, he said, run out and says, Tell me how many basis points the difference is between this deal and that deal. I had no idea what a basis point was. I had to call my wife, Lisa, who was at her office. Lisa, what's a basis point? Needless to say, I've come a little way since then, but uh, it taught me a lot. Did he ever find you out? I mean, eventually, I guess you uh, you caught up. <laughs> Everyone gets found out. You know, mm. the, the, the great thing about... Uh, Working, the great thing about life is anytime you plunge into a new endeavor from law, which was safe, it was something my father encouraged me to do, to something that was far more entrepreneurial, where we're a small company, um, you get found out every day. Mm. I still get found out, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. if not by my kids, by my colleagues. And it's a good thing because it teaches you humility. Yeah. And lots of other things. And it keeps you wanting to learn. You mentioned your wife. we spoke to Lisa Heffernan, who is indeed Roger's wife of 39 years, a highly accomplished M&A banker, having held senior leadership roles at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. She's also served on the board of her own alma mater, Smith College, for many years. Let's let's listen to Lisa. One thing that's that's interesting that I think people don't know about Roger is that he comes from a, a very modest background. His parents were from an agricultural family, and he was the first in his family to get a university degree. And when he told his parents that he wanted to go to university, then on to graduate school in law and business, his parents gave him a lot of emotional support, but very little financial support. And he basically graduated with, at the time, it was $30,000 of student debt which is more than about $100,000 today. So he, he took a huge risk then. Emily, it was the best investment I ever made, ever. I think of every investment I've made in my life, and I've made hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them. It's why my wife and I are so, so involved in giving to education, because I think it's the one thing, there are other things, but it's the one thing that gives people 
an edge and a great head start. And, uh, you know, it created a rift at the time because my father was thought going to college was important. But, you know, he was sort of of the view, the cheaper place you go, the better place you go. And uh, it didn't really matter. You know, and I had completely the opposite view that you aspire to the heights, you try and get in. You're not going to get into every place you perhaps would like to go. But I think that builds not just uh, an educational foundation, but also a personal foundation. Friends from that time, um, uh, teachers from that time, they made a huge impact on my life. And you know, I'd encourage anyone on the line that's listening, you know, to, to think about that, you know, not just for themselves, if they're still in the formative years, but also for their children, because I think it's hugely important and influences your future uh, beyond what one could possibly imagine. Moving on to people taking a risk on, on you. We spoke to Scott Malkin, founder of Value Retail and lifelong friend of Roger. The two have worked together on global outlet centres, hotels and sports team investments over the years. We know you were actually someone who took a chance on Scott back in the day but he shared some interesting insight on a time when the shoe was on the other foot. I would say Roger is fundamentally relationship-led rather than transaction-minded. When he started Pelham, he had the courage to focus on transactions and partnerships, and that was incredibly productive at a time when the market was moribund. He left Goldman Sachs to start his own business. Players in the property market went out of their way to reach out to him when he was essentially a pure startup without obvious funding. And this reflects his natural capacity for partnership and for understanding others and working with them in a way that creates value. He has had that as the hallmark of his business career. As the market has evolved, he has embraced different opportunities, always focused on adding value. Tell me about your your business, your your friendship, your relationship with with Scott. Look, it's the most remarkable thing because we both have kids of similar ages. Uh, a couple of them went to Thomas's in Battersea. Um, Scott uh, and I uh, shared Saturday mornings. Kicking. Oh, indeed, he he told he said you two were the only fathers at the side of the pitch where daughters were playing. I think <laughs> that, there were like a hundred boys. That's and... exactly right. And, and the uh, coaches and the referees uh, were the uh, Thomas's janitors who on weekends would uh, graciously give their time to the kids who were playing in, in, in those days. And we started as a friendship. You know, it really was comparing notes about uh, our past, you know, where we grew up in America, about our families, uh, our, our friendships, and over time, you know, it, Scott was similar. I mean, Scott doesn't give himself enough credit. He probably didn't have to on it. But, you know, he was also a startup. I mean, he, you know, he left uh, a company, started uh, Bister Village back in a time when everyone thought he was mad. Uh, firstly, the recession in the early 90s is arguably as, as going to be as profound as this one. You know, and he struggled like all of us to buy property, he artfully brought in uh, a number of outside partners, uh, not just myself, but uh, Michael Freeman of Argent and others who could help him along the way. And he's developed the most remarkable business. But the thing I most admire about Scott, it's his family. You know, it's what he's created, he and his wife, Laura, over 40 years of a great relationship. I think that it's grounded in wholesomeness and in really fair-mindedness and in good leadership. So hats off to him as well. 
Well, there he was talking about you setting up Pelham Partners. It is worth saying that at the time you did that, you were running Goldman Sachs in Europe. Mm. You, you were a big deal. Mm. What were you thinking? What, why start over again? You know, Emily, it's, it, it, was, um, it was quite risky. Uh, and it created, um, I don't want to say strains uh, personally, but it did in some ways because, you know, I could fall back on the way. On the one hand, Elisa had a great job at the time at J.P. Morgan and M&A. Uh, I was sort of taking a leap into the darkness, as every entrepreneur does, so it's a bit frightening. But I knew one thing, you know, I knew that uh, I was convinced that if I could import American capital into Europe in a time when there was no capital, it's hard to hard to imagine this today because mm -hmm. we're replete with debt, we're replete with equity. In those days, there was no debt or equity. Really, there were only two competitors. Morgan Stanley had a fund, it was probably $300 million of equity. Goldman Sachs's first Whitehall fund was 160 million of equity, of equity. And I knew if I could convince someone uh, in the States um, to help back me in making investments, um, I'd have a profoundly successful opportunity. And that's what really what drove me. Mm. Um, it was risky, you know, and uh, thank God for Lisa, because she was the one that was sort of uh, bringing home the bacon, as yeah. it were allowed me to leverage that to create uh, a, a, a fortune, um, you know, not just personally, I mean, new rich friendships as well. We started in the UK and then branched out to, into Europe. And then over time, I mean, today, goodness knows, there must be 200 competitors, you know, in, in the debt and equity side. So it's not an idea. I mean, you've got to grab the moment and seize it and create a brand and get people to trust you uh, in, in delivering and in this case, it fortunately worked out quite well in the end. Well, you were at the vanguard, staying in the vein of taking risks on, on people. We spoke to Sylvain Fortier, the Chief Investment and Innovation Officer at Ivanhoe Cambridge and Roger's friend of eight years. He, he turned this idea on its head. Here's Sylvain talking about taking risks on people. His approach to risk is really his approach to people and to the individual. At the end of the day, you approve numbers, but uh, I think he, he listens and, and watches a lot the, the people that will be managing his money. Obviously, he's had a very good nose. You know, having a good nose sometimes is really another, another word for experience. You know, maybe you've been hit a few times and you had a few not so good stories and you actually remember them and you're able to uh, see through opportunities and it's sort it's no different than than life seeing through the opportunity to the person mm. if you're investing in people and not in data how do you decide who to take a risk on look i think it comes down to honesty it comes down to um, integrity I think it comes down to a sense of fairness. Mm. And um, I feel that those three elements don't exist in everyone. They, they just don't. I mean, we live in a world today that's uh, complicated. And everyone's complicated. No one has those three and, uh, you know, the robustness that we'd all like. But, you know, if, if, if they miss any one of those three, I feel I don't want to do business with them. And it's not just about money, is it, you know, at the end of the day? You know, at the end of the day, it's also about being proud of what you've achieved and 
wanting to work with someone not once, but twice, but ten times. You know, I has, have with Scott and uh, Sylvan, we've done many pieces of business together. And by the way, you know, when I've spoken to Sylvan, asking him for assistance at uh, Apollo, um, not personal assistance, but assistance with the company, when he says he'll do something, he'll do it. And uh, that means a lot to me. You know, and I know sometimes you got to go back because your boss says no or someone doesn't like it or whatever. But I feel the same with him. I feel that if I can look him in the eye and say it's done, um, that I can deliver not just myself but the institution on something. And that's analyzing the risk. But it's also understanding not just the business risks, but the internal risk. If you're with a big company, you've got to deliver the investment committee. If you're with a big company like Ivanhoe Cambridge, as important as what Sylvan is and as important as people are going to follow his lead, uh, they're going to have detractors. They're going to point to mistakes. We've all made mistakes. You know, I, in my uh, period of life, you know, I've got plenty of scars on my back to prove the number of mistakes I've made. But it's a percentage game. We're not going to win everyone. But we're going to most things. And the people that, uh, that you trust and have the integrity are also the people you want to do business with at the end of the day. And real estate, of course, is this long-term relationship mm. business. Um, Mark Dixon shared some heartwarming insight with us on, on building long-term relationships um, over many years. Mark, of course, the billionaire founder of serviced office business, Regis, who also weathered the tech crisis of 2001 with Roger, spoke to us about this very point. Business has been a big part of my life and uh, I've had a wonderful journey up until now. And I've met some, I've had the good fortune to meet some fantastic people. Roger was one of those people. You know, we've had some great times together. I think, I think Roger's greatest strength is, you know, it is around his relationships that go back a long, long way, not just with me, but with many business people and property people. So look, it's one of those great things that when you look back on your life in business, if you can achieve great relationships, then that is something. And, and Roger is one of those. Well, that's that's very kind of Mark to say that. And of course, he's been profoundly successful. And uh, but when when we got our start, we, we put together a consortium and invested one hundred million dollars of equity in Mark when he was a private company. Uh, this is before people really understood what service office was about. Mm -hmm. Now, with each passing year, with each passing decade, service office becomes more and more important. So he's a true visionary. And we've had a lot of fun together. You know, we've been down, I've been down to his uh, place in the south of France. I remember once being down there watching an Arsenal match, falling asleep with my son on the sofa. And he, Mark wakes me up and says to me, Roger, Roger, I want to introduce me to, to two friends of mine. I look up, it's Angela Jolie and Brad Pitt, <laughs> who wanted to buy his house. And of course, I was tempted to say to Brad, I was hoping I'd wake up with her, but not with you. <laughs> but I didn't. I bit my tongue. Uh, but this has been 15 or 20 years ago. But it, but ever since uh, Mark and I, uh, we were hanging on by our fingernails in the in the tech wreck. I mean, the share price went from four pounds. We issued the shares at 296. They went up to four pounds. They plummeted down to two p, two pence. And uh, I got to tell you. Um, I have the utmost respect for Mark, for his leadership, for his unstinting belief 
in service offices in a time that it was totally, completely dire. The board stood behind him. His shareholders stood behind him. We got uh, emergency financing of 40 million pounds, which is uh, probably the net worth of the entire company. And look at him today. You know, he's... Uh, the market cap is 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 significant. You know, I don't know. It's probably three or four billion pounds. Um, he's weathering this storm in a way that's uh, as, uh, unbelievable. You know, he's able to take advantage of, of these opportunities. And when you look at a guy like that, what he's gone through, he's he's had a lot of good fortune, but he's but he's also earned it. Mm. And if he came back to me today and said, "Look, you know, um, I've got this idea." Can you help me here? I'm going to go into a different market, or I want to approach things a little bit different. I'd always be there for him to listen, uh, not not just uh, professionally, but also personally. He's an extraordinary man. So speaking to your friends, family, colleagues, it's clear that you are a people person. But there have been times when you didn't read the room so well. I'm going to leave it to your wife to take this story from here. Roger's been an Arsenal fan from the day he arrived in the UK, but he was indoctrinated by the North London property crowd. So he supported Arsenal during the glory days in the 1990s. And and Roger's just been a, a loyal fan, even in the most recent past, which I'm not sure if you're a football fan, but they, they've not been very glorious. He has very good friends who are on arch rival teams. For example, he has a very good friend who is a Chelsea supporter. And whenever Arsenal is playing Chelsea, he invites Roger to go to Stanford Bridge. So this was a very big match between Arsenal and Chelsea, and it was at Stanford Bridge. Of course, they're in the equivalent of the president's section. So it's it's the box where a lot of senior management of Chelsea and so forth are. Roger is there with all of his Arsenal garb on, in the box with all the Chelsea fans, and he's cheering on Arsenal. So whenever Arsenal makes a goal, he's cheering. And of course, everyone else is silent. So this one person in particular keeps looking at him. It's an American and giving him the evil eye. Roger, of course, is oblivious. He doesn't care. He continues this. And all of a sudden, Roger starts getting all of these text messages and emails saying, Roger, you're on TV. You're on Sky Sports. You're sitting right next to Matt Damon. So Roger just kind of is glancing down every once in a while. Of course, he doesn't know who Matt Damon is from a hole in the wall. So anyway, so <laughs> Roger comes home to me and says, you, you'll never believe this. Everyone kept uh, emailing me and texting me that I was sitting next to Matt Damone. <laughs> you know who he is? <laughs> you, you think your buddy Brad Pitt would have given you a bit of a... <laughs> yeah, that, that is rather embarrassing. And uh, you know, Peter Beckwith and I, to this day, share each other's uh, boxes. Uh, he's as rabid a fan uh, going to my Arsenal uh, seats as I am going to his Chelsea seats. Uh, fortunately, he has more insight into personalities than what I do. So I don't think he's completely embarrassed himself the way uh, the way I have. But, but you know, if, if I did have a wish, you know, uh, other than being a successful property uh, entrepreneur and investor for many years, I, I would have liked to have been a professional footballer, to be true. I, you know, I think I, and now I could have helped out the Rs, you know, mm. in their time of need. They they need it. Yeah. As you know, I live in Highbury. So, yeah, I know, uh, <laughs> I know. 
Um, you were decked out there in Arsenal garb and talking of clothing, you, you are infamous in the industry for, for dressing impeccably. So much so that Scott Malkin shared an anecdote with us on your travel wardrobe. I've, I've travelled around the world on different occasions with Roger and uh, he does not travel carry on. He needs, in that Churchillian sense, he needs his, uh, the accoutrement. <laughs> He's got he's got the tools for the job. I I travel one bag bag and get off the plane, and uh, he's got, he's got a large bag checked in the hold. So he's prepared for the mission. I love that prepared for the mission. I have images of him waiting for you while you're <laughs> waiting for well, your trunk. Well, he does wait for me, but I, he doesn't <laughs> know that the golf clubs are secretly stored in in, in my trunk. So uh, you know, and you do need you never know. Up, you wake up in the morning, you never know what tie you want to put on. You know, I mean, you need a selection of them. Absolutely. As he says, prepared for the mission. I I am afraid we are going to have to ruin your at all times dapper reputation. As your wife, Lisa, told us of a time when your wardrobe choice was slightly more questionable. I think he lost a bet on a uh, a Cardinal game. This is a, his favorite baseball team. And I think he had had a bet with one of his friends at Apollo, who was a Boston Red Sox fan. And they're arch rivals. And Roger said if the Cardinals lost, he would wear his, his Cardinal pajamas to work. And lo and behold, they lost. And he did. He wore his pajamas over his three-piece suit, of course, to work. <laughs> but of course, on top of the three-piece suit... Any, well, any photos? Uh, there are photos. I hope we've destroyed them. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, some of my colleagues uh, from that time, in fact, do have some of these photos. So I'll get my research department <laughs> on it. <laughs> let's hope it's not on the front page of Property Week, but it probably will be very soon. <laughs> um, as we've discussed already, this podcast is all about risk and we can't possibly go any further without talking about the greatest clothing risk of all. Um, we have a small surprise for you here, Roger. Unbeknownst to you, we spoke to your son, Ted. Oh, my Lord. For our listeners, uh, Ted is the managing partner of venture capital and growth equity business, Revolt Ventures. And he shared this story of both risk, reward, incredible determination and some highly questionable clothing choices. Here's Ted. A few years ago, he was invited by one of his Scottish friends to participate in a 50-mile walk throughout the Scottish Highlands. And he turned up, I believe, you know, straight from a from a business setting um, and, you know, was, I'd say, incredibly optimistic in his attire because he was wearing jeans um, as well as, I think, even loafers for this 50-mile walk. I think everyone else was in uh, hiking boots and kind of um, waterproofs, etc. But, you know, nonetheless, he proceeded to walk uh, the 50 miles throughout both the day and the night, you know, naturally, in accordance with typical Scottish weather, it started, you know, a torrential downpour. His friend described it as walking through treacle because every one step you would take, your foot would go, you know, kind of a foot down into... Um, <laughs> into what was in effect a marsh and you know throughout uh, throughout that he was one of i believe only a fifth of of the people who had initially signed up to actually finish did the loafers survive the, the loafers did not survive you know i think i still have my smelly pair of socks from that <laughs> um and it was it was the most remarkable cause you know uh, talk about causes that we all or blessed. There's something called the Caledonian Challenge, which exists to this day. But this was the founding 
year of the Caledonian Challenge, and I was very proud. I think in those days I may have raised 10 or 20 grand uh, for this, and it dispenses uh, charitable gifts to widow and widowers and people who are really in need, not not in big lump sums, but you know, to little families that may need 250 pounds to have a nice you know, weekend out someplace or a nice meal someplace. Mm-hmm. And and uh, to this day, I'm very proud of that. I should have prepared a little bit better uh, for, for the event. I went with one of my um, property friends at that time and a group of others. And, uh, you know, we, as, as Ted mentioned, uh, it rained throughout uh, the West Scottish Highlands, except at the very top when it was snowing. <laughs> This is on, like, June the 25th, summer solstice. So it was the most remarkable time and and the most remarkable piece of fun. And next time, Ted, I will wear your army boots while I'm hiking. And I think you might have to bring him with you (laughs) just for payback. Um, Staying with that theme of family, uh, let's talk about family, what it means to you. And for that, perhaps some some food for thought. Let's listen to Chaim Katzman, who is founder and CEO of Gazette Globe and friend of Rogers since 2008, where the pair weathered the global financial crisis together. I attended his daughter's wedding in Scotland. You know, as the father of the bride, and I and I have three daughters, so I know what it takes. It was heartwarming to see how he spoke about his family and about his daughter. He just told you how well, you know, we are all fathers who've been traveling around. I'm saying to myself, this is the first time in my, I think in my lifetime as an adult at least, that I stayed in one place for five months. We all were blessed. Uh, We all married up with women who were much better than us. They let us travel the world. But listening to him, I saw how well he knew his daughter, how well he knew every nuance of her life. I love that, the idea that you both married up and knowing your wife, I think that's possibly true. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is the added benefit of being true, uh, like, like so many things in life. And look, I mean, Haim is um, another dear friend and partner. Uh, and uh, years and years ago, we invested a sign- very significant amount of money in something called Minor European Land, which mm. uh, now is called Atrium. And uh, it, was, it was a big some in those days. It was $250 million. Uh, it was done pre-Great Financial Crisis. And lo and behold, the great fi- and it, this public property company was invested in Central and Eastern European property, which was in vogue probably from, I don't know, late 90s through 2007. But there was a time uh, after that investment when the net cash on the balance sheet was 800 million and the value of the shares were 400 million. It was just the most extraordinary time and it was nail biting. And the one thing I remember about Haim is his steadfastness and courage uh, to, to work his way through. I was on the board, the leadership he showed, the fortitude he showed, the example he showed, it was the most Remarkable thing, and and to this day, you know, and Haim is, uh, you know, we've all had our ups and downs, uh, personally and professionally. He certainly had them. We all have. Um, he's been a dear, dear friend. So it's it's nice of him to say that. Uh, you know, it, it uh, hopefully has the added benefit of being true. Let's hear from him again, and and hear as he talks about this 
handling a crisis and the perspective that uh, that he has on that. We were involved in a very complicated deal buying from a party that was not at its best moment, uh, to say the least. We had to get through many, many hurdles. There were moments where they could go the way, we could go away. And at all times, uh, I think that the decision that we're going to get it done and we're going to get it done together was the underlying rationale. And Roger just stayed the course and we got it done and uh, we got it done successfully. The fact that endears me to Chaim even more is that he, he told me he cries every time he sees the movie Father of the Bride. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, for this extremely successful businessman, um, that uh, that 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 makes me feel very happy to hear that. Well, he's a lovely man, and uh, he, there's another great example of what real estate's all about. You talk about the people that have been on this call; they've all been at their heart, and it's one of the reasons I love real estate. They're they're entrepreneurs. I mean, Mark started; he was a hot dog salesman, you know. Uh, uh, in in Belgium, you know, he had this crazy idea of service software. He made that market, you know, and to this day, um, he continues to reinvent the market. Uh, Scott similarly, you know, there was really no outlet centers in Europe when Scott started. You know, mm. Heim emigrated from Israel to America, and you know, had the vision to get involved in retail. Uh, you know, I know today there's a lot of people scratching their heads about where it goes. He's got strong views about that, but. You know, he virtually invented the neighborhood center. And the types of people in real estate are, are just different. You know, they're entrepreneurial, they're free spirits, they're fun, they're zany. You know, sometimes you got to calm yourself down. Sometimes you got to calm them down. It, it brings you together in ways when you're in the same foxhole. It's one of the great joys of being in property. So in, you invest in as much as the deal as in the relationship. And you do that over time. I, I think it's paramount. Mm. I, I just think that, uh, look, I, I mean, you can't eat IRRs, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and over the years, uh, you know, I've been, become more fond of multiples uh, on invested capital than IRRs. You know, I'd rather have, you know, four times my money over 15 years than 20% uh, you know, IRRs for two years. Mm. As our name suggests, we are marooning you on a desert island, and I think of everyone I've met you're the one that's going to struggle the most with this marooning because um you're you're a sociable person you you talk there about the interest of meeting people and the dynamism that comes from that but as we put you there on the beach and as you reminisce on 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 career and deals done which is the real estate investment that you are most proud of well it has to be um a deal that I did uh, initially on my own in the data center business in mm. Germany. And uh, this is in the late 90s. Uh, it was done without uh, financial backing of any of the large real estate private equity funds. Done with me. I found the site. I found the tenant. Uh, in those days, it was a famous tenant, now infamous, called MCI WorldCom. Mm -hmm which uh, uh, lasted for about six minutes and then, uh, of course, went bust. Uh, we found cable and wireless. But the, the key thing that uh, worked there was I also found a partner recognizing, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a developer. I reached out to Klaus Lamine, uh, who remains a good friend and partner in, in Germany, who built the buildings. 
we in turn reached out to a young guy but in those days named Ruprecht Ritvager. And Rupi, as we call him, uh, we hired the guy, believe it or not, the, his last job was selling T-shirts in Romania. Wow. <laughs> we thought to ourselves, hmm, can he really sell to Bundesbank and Deutsche Postbank and Google? The answer is he could. So, you know, starting with brick from brick by brick, I found the first tenant. I mean, to my, my hat's off to Rupi and Klaus. It's the it's endearing part of a partnership, one plus one equaling three. You know, I found the site. I found the initial tenant that allowed us to get uh, uh, 100% financing, which is when you're doing it yourself is, is, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had 15 years of ups and downs, believe me. I mean, there were times when... The property was worth, that project was worth less than zero. There was times when it was worth a lot more than zero, and then it would be less than zero again. We ultimately sold it, uh, the, the entire business, for over a billion euros to NTT, the large uh, Japanese telecom company. But it was 15 years of, of hard work, and it demonstrated you know, risk. It demonstrated what I like to do, which occasionally is to make new markets. I mean, we were the only data center business in, in Germany at that time. We profited from that. But, you know, to an extent, what I've learned, real estate is all about timing. Building businesses, Emily, you know this with your uh, august uh, real estate w- business, is, is all about time. You know, you, you, you start something and, you know, it's step by step. It's inch by inch. And, you you know, you take two steps forward and one step back. And that's what I learned about that business. And it was phenomenally successful in the end. Where do you see the market going? What's next for the industry? Well, look, it's, uh, it's a great, great, great question. And the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, uh, I'll offer an opinion, but you know, I don't think anyone really knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still in the midst of lockdown here. We're sort of gradually unlocking ourselves. And yet it's confusing. The stock market appears robust, you know, certainly in the States, uh, probably driven by technology companies more than the underlying economy. Mm-hmm. I think that it doesn't reflect the small and medium-sized enterprises that I grew up with at Pelham. You have. Um, and I worry with the restaurants and the dry cleaners and all these little entrepreneurs when they open, um, people are going to be scared to go in these places because they won't feel safe and many of them aren't going to survive because they won't have the custom to survive. Now, you know, what does that mean for us, you know, real estate, private equity guys? I think there's immense opportunity. Um, part of it's because of the government-induced recession, you know. It, it, the hospitality industry. Just just think about it. You know, they've been closed for three months. A number of these are mom and pop. A number of them probably have leverage on their properties. They probably couldn't afford to pay their interest over this period of time. When they do open, people are going to be focused on how safe they are. You probably start without with 10% occupancy, and a number of them are going to go bust. Mm. And, you know, will banks really want to sell or be able to sell uh, to the likes of anyone, the debt, I think there's an element of moral hazard in, in, in that, you know, which people haven't really talked about yet. I mean, do you want to be uh, an owner that squeezes out the equity in, in these situations? I think it's a perplexing question, you know, uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world and elsewhere. Then beyond that, um, 
it, hospitality, I think, will take five years to recover. So, and, and how do you underwrite it? I mean, you know, will there be a vaccine? There wasn't a vaccine. There's not a vaccine for SARS. There's not a vaccine for HIV. Uh, thank the good Lord, we've, uh, you know, we've contained uh, HIV in a way, but, but there's no vaccine. Mm. There may not be one for this. You know, we may be living with this for years. It appears Oxford uh, uh, is on the cutting edge of developing something. I not, hope, hopefully they will. But back to the, your question, mm -hmm. hospitality, uh, retail, you know, I would submit um, retail probably needed a good recession to clear things out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Amazon's kind of won uh, in a way, and, uh, uh, and digitization, which I think is one of the great themes of the next 20 years, uh, will continue. And, of course, if you're buying, you know, uh, a bottle of milk and, you know, you can have it, afford to have it delivered to your house along with all your groceries, that may well be easier and more efficient than uh, going to a supermarket because not a lot of people get a joy out of doing that, especially now in the COVID era. Uh, but brands need a physical presence. You can't create that over the internet. So I'm convinced that, you know, whatever the famous bands are, I mean, there are many, many, many of them, so I won't go into their names. We know who, you know, they need a Bond Street. They mm. need a Bister Village. Re retail's all about memories. You know, mm. it's all about, you know, if you are going out for a day shopping, remembering an experience you've had there, whether it's bringing out your kids, whether it's bringing your friends, whether it's having a nice meal. And I think that that's gonna continue for a long time. And yet the retail that's in the center that doesn't have the identity, it's not so cheap that you're gonna go to it because you want the bargain. It's not so expensive, your price and elastic. It's, it's gonna change forever. And a lot of it's gonna go away and, and for us, uh, again, uh, not to sound like a, a carnivore, but, um, you know, it will be taking something like that, which will lose its identity, and having the imagination and the stick to to change it into residential or change it into office or even, a, even shopping malls. I mean, Brent Cross is a perfect example of a mall owned by a major U.K. property company. That location is spectacular. There are millions of chimney pots around that location. It's always going to be a great um, venue for retail, leisure, and you know, department stores may turn into something that's a little bit different. Maybe they become like a Harrods where you've got a series of kiosks inside mm -hmm. of a department store. But I think it will take different type of capital. Uh, it will take capital that's longer term because this will require capital expenditure investment not just for the short term, but over the long term. It's gonna take imagination. And you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of retail has changed in my lifetime. In the states, the JCPenney's, the Sears Roebuck don't exist. I mean, here we've gone through the agony of say, Debenhams, um, you know, and what's happening there. But what really happened was the great retailers, the Marks and Spencers, the Sears, the JCPenney's, uh, the Debenhams, they, were, they ended up being owned by financiers, and financiers are great at financing and, you know, taking out dividends and leveraging things, but they, they don't really have the imagination of retail. Mm -hmm. And I sincerely hope when we come out of this in September, October, not come out, but, you know, we're out of lockdown, um, that people have jobs, you know, and uh, my fear is in the Anglo-Saxon countries, meaning here in, in the States, um, 
you know, if you're at 10 and 11 percent employment, it could take years uh, to go away. And that means the whole demand side uh, for retail mm -hmm. and even for office uh, will be subdued. Uh, I've lived my life, uh, most of my professional life, in a capitalist environment, you know, and I think it's been a positive thing. I mean, I think all of us that you've had on your show and my friends at a bunk, you know, we're all very generous. But I think we're moving from a system that was raw capitalism to a system where we are going to have to work much more closely with government. And I don't mean that in a lobbyist way or in a way where there's backhanders going to people. I think that worries me the most, or one of the things in London, is just affordable housing. You know, I just look at my kids and I think to myself, thank the good Lord, you've had good fortune where you can give something mom and dad to help them to start. Mm. But it's impossibly expensive in London. And it doesn't need to be, you know. I think when I think about uh, everything in, many things in my lifetime, TV sets, radios, cars, if you, if you don't, if you take out the gimmicks, they've gone down in price. What's gone up? Building. You know. And it's not just labor, you know, it's just the cost of doing this. And, Somehow we've got to crack the code and, and uh, develop affordable housing in London to keep this be a vibrant, successful community. And that's not saying Manchester and Birmingham and these Leeds, Liverpool, you know, um, forgive me for mentioning some that probably are on this line listening to this, but, you know, they can su be successful too, sure. especially with the emphasis of the Tories. But we've got to crack the code in that area for London to continue to be successful. Roger. Before we end, I have to mention Apollo is arguably one of the best and most successful investors globally today. You, as we've heard today, are a man who prizes his relationship in the industry. So we couldn't finish this podcast without bringing to light one investor and business partner who you seem to have forgotten about. <laughs> Here's Sylvain Fortier from Ivanhoe, Cambridge again. We played golf, you know, I could still say publicly that he still owes me money for um, golf socks that he had to purchase at my club uh, because we can only play with you show up in Bermuda shorts, you need to wear long socks like the old time. And so he couldn't buy himself socks as he had to put it on my account. And he always said that uh, he would repay me and uh, he never he never repaid me. So that would be a, a good venue to remind him that my interest rate is much higher than the usual interest rate. So that is going up quickly. Let, let me just say one thing to my friend Sylvain, who I hope is on the line or will listen to this. Sylvain, the check is in the mail. <laughs> With the punitive interest rate added, <laughs> I think. Um, listen, I, I hope you're next deals work out and you have ample cash to cover this short long sock position <laughs> roger orf roger dodger thank you very much indeed thank you emily thanks for having me it's it was a, a pleasure it's been a pleasure to have you desert island risks is brought to you by bohill partners the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry for more information on this podcast or bohill partners feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks. <laughs>